0: We all know someone who's fast-tracked, not because they were born with a silver spoon or the skills were tilted in their favor, but because they went after it. They might have been gifted with intellectual or emotional or athletic capabilities, but they chose to unwrap these gifts and to pursue a life and a life of dreams and passion. Often they didn't just grab the next rung on the ladder, they made their own ladders. And yes, with ambition comes setbacks. Sometimes you reach too high, you leap too far, you lose traction, you even fall off. But these people get back on, even when they're accused of having blinding ambition or being too big for their boots. I mean, think about it, Gretzky was labeled too small, Oprah, the wrong color and voice. Car companies laughed at Elon Musk. So many people who refuse to get boxed in. And this is what Chatter That Matters is all about. Ordinary people who do extraordinary things, regardless of circumstance. Today, you're gonna to meet someone who's been on my one to watch list forever. And as I did research in this program, I realized that I didn't even know half of what this individual's done. She's Canadian, brilliant, bold, unapologetic, an author, a business leader, delivers TED Talks, that Trailblazers that's worked tirelessly to smash apart the glass ceiling that's prevented women from achieving.
1: Suddenly, something is kind of creeping up inside that makes you think, am I really supposed to be here? Am I meant to be here? You, the questions that we ask ourselves, that where we have feel that nagging doubt inside, we sometimes listen to that voice a little too much. And I'm going to tell you that whatever doubts that you might be feeling, you are exactly where you are meant to be.
2: You're listening to the iHeart Radio Canada Talk Network, and this is Chatter That Matters with Tony Chapman, presented by RBC.
0: Her name's is Kirsten Stewart, and today she's shaping the future media at the World Economic Forum. Her passion and her pursuit will inspire you. Kirsten Stewart, welcome to Chatter That Matters.
1: Thank you, Tony. What a great introduction. My goodness, I want to meet this person. <laughs> <laughs>
0: Your job is the head of shaping the future of media at the World Economic Forum. Break down that title. What does that mean, shaping the future of media? And what's the kind of stage that you're, you're performing on?
1: I think most people know the forum from Davos, you know, the big meeting that happens every January, where you have heads of state and heads of business and captains of industry get together and think about the ways that and the decisions that they make in their day-to-day worlds and how they impact the globe. And media is a big part of the world today and how how it moves and, and it propels a lot of business today. And the media sector has about 40 to 50 partners that belong to the forum. They're all big multinational companies. There's Facebook, it's Tencent, it's Google, uh, New York Times. You know, they're publishers, they're platforms, they're content creators, and they have huge influence and they understand also the responsibilities that come with that influence. A great kind of position to be in because you have these leaders who are competitors, uh, they're sometimes clients of each other, they're really looking beyond to see what what is the impact of what they're doing and the worlds that they create and the business decisions that they make. And so we look at the future of media in the sense of, you know, how is content going to be created? How is it going to be paid for? Uh, how are consumers, how are viewers, how are listeners, how are people going to be engaging in content in the future? Uh, how do we make that accessible for all? How do we make sure that there's safe spaces within that so that people feel like they have the opportunity to create their own content? All of that is really an opportunity to to work together with these companies and take a look at what are the ways that we can shape a better future together?
0: Imagine being in that room and you've got legacy media, you've got the new media giants that are emerging all based on network learning. But they have to look in the mirror and realize that at best, half of people are trusting traditional media. That number falls off for search engines and falls off the cliff for social mm-hmm. and earned media. So how do they, what used to be the trusted source, that Walter Cronkite definitive moment, how do they get back to a position where they what they put out, people value as opposed to, uh, in many cases, not believe? It's a huge challenge today.
1: And I think, you know, you're right.
0: It has been a challenge that I think traditional media
1: kind of escaped for a while um, because a lot of the blame and you know a lot of the activity, a lot of the ways that the social media had been unrolling and unfolding have, had really disrupted the market. Absolutely. But it also, in lots of ways, made it a, a more challenging world, a more dangerous world. A lot of folks didn't think that traditional media was going to be painted with the same brush. You know, then along came an election, then along came you know, a, a position of a lot of people globally, not just in the States, but actually around the world, maybe facts don't matter. What are facts? You know, what We're living in a bit of a post-factual world. So you're right to point out that there are studies right now that media is actually tracking the least trusted it has ever been. It's actually a lot of hard work and the facts are facts. It's going to take a lot of work, I think, to build back that trust.
0: To monetize media, it really requires building an audience. And one argument people are saying is because now of algorithms, I can build an audience of like-minded people with like-minded beliefs. I, and the more I push them into a fringe, uh, the more I, I build a moat around that audience because they enjoy the fact that they're, they share these common beliefs. Media in the past used to pull me to the middle. What can we do to kind of encourage media to get back to that point where we're debating and listening to other people's points of view versus just saying, I've got to defend that audience and feed them what they want, what their appetite is.
1: It is a really interesting position that we're in now. And I think we are really concerned about things like what we call confirmation bias. You know, the idea that people like to ingest, read, listen to. Uh, information that reconfirms what they already believe. It's a comforting place to be, especially when the world is as confusing and as uh, disruptive as it is right now. It, it is for a lot of people very comforting to have your own beliefs reinforced, but it's also obviously very dangerous. You get these polarizing views. But as it ever was in terms of it bleeds, it leads. These are the ways that people you know, have always been attracted to headlines. It's the way that people rubberneck as they drive past you know, an accident on the highway. It's unfortunate. It is a bit of human nature. So yes, we can absolutely blame algorithms. Algorithms take advantage of human nature. They're manipulating it, definitely. But they're actually building on something that's a bit already there in terms of human nature and the decisions that we make. It's a hard one to kind of lay at the feet entirely of those that are building the social media engines that take advantage of what is a human nature flaw, I guess, if you want to call it that, or it's just human nature altogether. You know, what we take a look at is the various you know, policies, the ways that you you can level the playing field, the ways that you can inject different views, um, but it's hard to make people watch. You can lead a horse to water. You can't necessarily make them drink, as they say, Right. You'll see people like, you know, Jack Dorsey just recently, he keeps talking about the health of the conversation on Twitter. Uh, and having been at Twitter, I know, you know, from the inside how challenging it is to try to you know, depend on communities to kind of police
0: it. What do you think is the role of education, getting children, teenagers, university students who open their minds to different points of view? Is that something that should now get baked in the curriculum?
1: Yeah. And I, you know, I think the broader, you know, the the idea that you can hold two different opposing thoughts in your head at one time seems to be, you know, a skill that we need to relearn or reteach each other ourselves, whether you do that through education, through just, I think about, you know, being a parent myself and trying to encourage, you know, my own children to be aware of the greater world around them. And, you know, it's not always easy. I think it's, you know, education in itself can help bring a broader point of view but it's a hard one to kind of reinforce if it's not being reinforced at home, and then home can also be a challenging of what's happening in the schools. We've seen that happen, you know, all the time. When you know, even if it's if it's a matter of you know, bringing uh, health education, sex education into a classroom, you've got the folks that are that are not happy with what's being taught because it's t- teaching a view different from their own. So it's hard to lay it on the on the feet of educators. But at the same time, you know, absolutely in terms of youth and developing brains, I think it's important that we not put people very quickly into these camps so that they have the opportunity to develop critical thinking. I always joke that the degree that I have is largely useless one because it's English literature. It actually was really helpful to me because it did teach me critical thinking. The opportunity to be exposed and be challenged to kind of broaden your brain and and broaden your mindset around what is possible out there.
0: Hi, it's Tony Chapman, host of Chatter That Matters. There's a lot more with Kirsten Stewart. We're gonna talk about growing up in Milton, Ontario, her time at the CBC, walking away from a job that nobody walks away from, Schitt's Creek, Dragon's Den, and so much more.
1: When something breaks, if the pieces are large enough, you can fix it. Unfortunately, sometimes things don't break. They shatter. But when you let the light in, shattered glass will glitter. And in those moments, when the pieces of what we were catch the sun, I'll remember just how beautiful it was. You know, there were a few times in my career where I felt I went out on a limb, I you know, stuck up my neck, you know, all of those things that you do as a young person trying new things. And if, if your team or your boss doesn't support you in that moment, are you gonna do it again? Like what is innovation, but trying.
2: Chatter That Matters with Tony Chapman continues, presented by RBC.
0: Follow Chatter That Matters wherever you get your podcast. Today I'm chatting with Kirsten Stewart, an ordinary person who's doing extraordinary things, Canadian and a martyr around the world for her work in the media space. I want to find out how a girl who grew up in Milton, Ontario, finds her way to shaping the future of media in Los Angeles, and Geneva, and New York, at the World Economic Forum. That's quite okay. a journey. So tell me a little bit about your parents.
1: Sure. So actually, I, even from outside Milton, I'm from Camelville or Nassiguaia, for those of you local folks uh, who, who know the area well. Uh, my parents came from the UK uh, to Canada. Uh, you know, my parents uh, came to Canada because they were in search, I think, of a lot, as a lot of folks were at that time in the 60s and 70s, of opportunity. They didn't come from wealthy families. They came from hardworking families. Um, My father uh, was educated at a, a very prestigious boys' school, uh, an academy uh, just outside of uh, Glasgow. But he was there by virtue of a scholarship that he was given being kind of recognized as the smartest boy in the village. So they would allow one boy from the village to attend the school and that was my dad. So he had the luck of being able to, you know, have the kind of education that not a lot of boys his age were afforded, but also the challenge of, you know, being the the only one of his, his kind in the school. Uh, and also his mom, my grandmother. My grand, uh, was, um, a cleaner at the school. And so you can imagine his, his, challenges as he, you know, was establishing himself. And, uh, my mom's from the south, uh, of England. She's from Farnbroom. Her father, her family was a incredibly intelligent one. Again, you know, not a wealthy family, but my granddad had done things like he got the, um, an MBE, sorry, a, a CBE, I think, as a, a, a member of the British Empire, an MBE. Um, for service that he had done uh, for creating, he miniaturized electronics. He was fascinated with electronics. He miniaturized them and did things like the early iterations of ultrasound. Created uh, things that you know that were important to the British Army at the time that you could using radio waves detect things. So coming to to Canada was their chance to start something that wasn't bound by class, that was you know full of opportunity. They had the chance to go to either Australia. Or Canada as the new new as the new world. I'm very glad they chose Canada. Um, my mom got a job first because she had drafts personal skills, and so she was working first. And then my dad got a job as a clerk in a company, uh, and then grew, worked his way up. Changed company soon after. Worked his way up to becoming president of Latin America. Living in Peru, living in Chile, he did. Uh, achieve. Um, I think what, what they were hoping for and did it, you know, they did it all on their own. So it was, it's, it's an amazing family to be a part of.
0: Lots of intellectual capital, entrepreneurial spirit, ambition. And it seems to have passed to you because in an early age, uh, you know, you're first born often that's considered a protege, but in your case, teachers felt you were gifted intellectually. When did you start getting that attention?
1: And that was, um, that, I, and I think it was to the relief of my mom who didn't quite know what to do with me, um, <laughs> as, as she used to say. Um, and this was in the early days of things like Sesame Street and all that. So, you know, this is again, this was I think, my early attachment to television. And, you know, she knew enough that I was a kid uh, that needed a lot of stimulation um, or demanded maybe a lot of stimulation. And so I went to a primary school where they identified me. Um, as gifted. And I skipped kindergarten, I accelerated through university as well and graduated quite young. I, you know, I I have a love-hate relationship with academia. I, you know, I appreciate people who are very smart and who do good work. Um, I was someone who was probably in the principal's office more often than I should have been. Got through that really quickly because I really, really wanted to work.
0: Do you have any regrets that you just moved so quickly during that time? Or was it just that was your ambition and you were going to follow it?
1: You know, I don't know that you can have, you know, your self regrets. Like, I don't I don't know that regrets are are healthy or, you know, I don't look back, I guess, is is what I'm trying to say. But I do know that if I'm ever asked for advice from young people who are going through school, I'm like my own kids, my own, you know, my own daughters have gone through now school and university One, they both, they both accelerated their time there through university. I've got one who did two degrees at once. I've got another kid who just finished her um, four years and two and a half and just graduated into this pandemic mess, unfortunately. Even they didn't listen to my advice, which was take your time. Uh, But I don't know that I would have taken my time. I talk about this in my book, too, that I wrote this book called Our Turn. Uh, And it was a look back at paths and how people build their journeys. And I think everybody's journey is individual. and, And a lot of it is based on opportunity. Opportunity presents itself because of timing. If I had taken my time, would have I have had the same opportunities? I don't know. So that's why I say it's hard to have regrets because I think sometimes things, are, things happen as they're meant to. Uh, and I obviously felt the need or the, the desire to get out of school fast and enter the workforce. I entered at the worst time possible. I thought I'd be in publishing when I graduated and with that lofty uh, uh, English literature degree and the publishing world had just literally crashed the time that I graduated.
0: So you're gifted intellectually, bored academically, driven to graduate. You want to get into publishing. What did you end up doing for your first job? I
1: literally had to pound the pavement, answered a job in the Toronto Star, but what was called a Girl Friday at the time. Literally, you know, the the most junior, junior, junior person on the floor. And the uh, role was kind of like miscellaneous duties as assigned. And this was in the days of... You know, they're still using paper, so I was faxing, and I was uh, changing the water bottles. You know, I was doing a bit of everything, answering the telephones. But where I was was a really interesting place, and this is where I talk about, you know, opportunity. I didn't know that this world existed, this world called television distribution, and I had taken this Girl Friday job, a, a television production company that was in the in the business of selling television shows globally within six months of doing that girl Friday job, I had picked up the phone, I guess, a couple of times, one time too many, maybe, or one time, right. Uh, and uh, helped folks out uh, in a way that got recognized. And the boss came to me and said, Hey, um, how'd you like to be a sales executive? And suddenly I had been given the exotic uh, countries of Vietnam and and very small Southeast Asian uh, uh, countries, um, African countries, Middle Eastern countries, uh, you know, emerging markets to sell Canadian TV shows like Degrassi, did really well. And eventually, my market grew to you know larger markets like you know France and Germany, and and we were selling more and more um, shows, picking up catalogs, acquiring content. Like Monty Python's, um, uh, library of films and, uh, you know, I, I cut to seven years later. And I became president before I was 30. And again, that was opportunity mixed, you know, with a bit of hard work mixed with timing, uh, and uh, in a, in a, in an industry I didn't even know existed. And that was my entry into content. And I love it
0: to this day. That's a big part of your book and and your story. You know, it reminds me of is that very early on, the Bata Shoe Company out of Czechoslovakia sent two people to Africa to look to see if there was a market. He has Northern Africa, they have Southern, his counterpart has Southern Africa, and they both come back and report. His counterpart says there's no market here because nobody wears shoes. And Bata shows up and says, there's an unbelievable market here because nobody wears shoes. And I think that's the lesson we're hearing from you is that, you know, I picked up the phone, I answered it, maybe one too much. I started going beyond my job and seven or eight years later, you're running it. Follow Chatter That Matters wherever you get your podcast. When we come back, Kirsten Stewart fast tracks through the ranks of CBC and become the first woman to run it. And an interesting trivia fact, the television show Shit's Creek wouldn't have had its name if it wasn't for her.
1: How could outside press ever talk about a show
2: if its name sits creek? Chatter That Matters with Tony Chapman will return in a moment.
0: Hi, it's Tony Chapman, host of Chatter That Matters, presented by RBC. Women-led enterprises are key to Canada's economy, and RBC is helping to accelerate and grow these businesses. Sponsoring the RBC Canadian Women Entrepreneur Awards, a celebration of impact and achievement, and CEO, a radically generous community supporting women working on the world's to-do list. Women-led businesses and the economy matters to RBC.
2: Chatter That Matters with Tony Chapman continues.
0: Welcome back to Chatter That Matters. I'm chatting with Kristen Stewart, a Canadian based in LA. She's the head of shaping the future of media at the World Economic Forum. Intellectually gifted and patient, Kirsten knows how to grab higher and higher rungs, and in doing so, becomes an inspiration for others. Kirsten, after Alliance Atlantis and Hallmark Television, you joined CBC, I think it was in 2006, and you fast-tracked to become the first woman to run it. My first role at CBC was to run
1: the television division, which, you know, that was a pretty nice, big job uh, at the time, um, but it was a real challenging one. Because I was stepping into a world where CBC, I think at the time, was on record as having the least viewed Canadian shows of any Canadian broadcaster, which is not a great place to be if you're being paid at least to the tune of a billion dollars in an appropriation by the Canadian taxpayers. I made a few changes and I was supported and surrounded by an amazing team of people who most of them had been there for a, while, a lot longer than I had been. I think at the time when I came in, people expected I'd bring in a whole new crew around me. And yes, we, you know, we made some changes, but ultimately uh, they really just needed the opportunity to shine, stretch their wings a little bit. So we brought in reality TV uh, in the form of shows like Dragon's Den comedy, uh, like Being Erica, which I still notice down here when I'm in LA. I love to see this on Netflix. and I did one of the first Netflix deals with Canadian content. I'd done this deal with Netflix to buy a lot of uh, CBC shows. Uh, Even back in the day, it was risky. Um, But like I said, it was on the backs of a lot of of talented people that built some fantastic shows. And uh, we were able to turn it around.
0: How important is it to give people that have been there a long time, they probably feel like they're running in cement, nothing ever changes. Here comes another leader to really create this new sense of purpose and passion that we can, we are capable of doing much more.
1: I'm a big believer in it. Again, any of the successful moments I can look back on my career have been because I've been surrounded by a team that has empowered me or given me gifts that, you know, I can. Uh, and then hopefully what I've done is lifted open and, and pushed down any barriers for them to get to those, those successes. And I think sometimes that fear of change holds us back as Canadians uh, because we are very measured in our decision making. Um, which can sometimes, you know, miss on opportunities. What I did for them, I hope was be the fall guy in some respects, the buck stop with me. So if something was to fail, it would be on me. And, uh, I think in order to engender that trust with your team, it's incredibly important. I think, you know, there needs to be an understanding that leaders need to build trust and that trust goes two ways. You know, the pandemic has been a great opportunity to really show people, the the value of their relationships and the strength of their relationships. I think coming out of this, if we are to build back stronger, we do need to understand how to tap better into that huge talent base that we have.
0: And tell me a little bit about the debate of the name Schitt's Creek, because from what I understand, you were the one that sort of, that really weighed in and said this made a lot of sense.
1: Well, I wouldn't, I, I actually wouldn't take credit for that. Um, I, when the Schitt's Creek conversation came around and in the development early development conversations it was how could you ever nobody could say you know and and i think this was something that was talked about even externally how could you how could outside press ever talk about a show if its name sits creek (laughs) it's one of those things little mosque on the prairie same thing little mosque on the prairie oh my god you're gonna have a jihad on your head is what i got told these debates that we have, um, whether it's around a Schitt's Creek or a little mosque on the Prairie or a Homes on Homes, it's an interesting reveal of where people are afraid of the um, reactions of others. Sometimes it's these bold moves that actually get attention, like Little Mosque on the Prairie. When that was debuted, it was the most downloaded uh, article on BBC News that day. And simply by virtue, I think that title, like what a great title.
0: You do what nobody else does. You're the first person to leave the CBC. You weren't retired. You weren't encouraged out. You decided to move from kind of this incredible success you're having and go over to Twitter. What what motivated that?
1: I'm a lover of content in all forms and what it's going to look like next. And I had already been using Twitter as um, a user um, I've been encouraging our talent to use it. Um, we've been getting people onboarded on the platform. You know, it was a great way to have a direct connection to the person that you love hearing or seeing on TV or hearing on radio. And I really saw the opportunity to get even closer to the audience. You know, TV is it's a one-way communication. And Twitter came along specifically because it was like in your hand, in the moment. It was one of the first mobile, first uh, uh, digital platforms where content was being created in front of you in real time. uh, And it was multi-dimensional. It was not just a one-way communication. And I thought this was the future. And when they came calling because they were looking to set up their Canadian office, yeah, I jumped at it. And I remember after making the decision and letting them know that I'd be leaving, the story was on the front page of the national newspaper the next day, like on all three national newspapers the next day. I was either, you know, the, the biggest idiot who was giving up the biggest media job in Canada, or I was a visionary who saw the future. I'm probably somewhere in between. Yeah. <laughs> um, and, uh, and yeah, I just saw this great opportunity to step into a global platform that was enabling creators, creating connections and conversation. And I really wanted to be there.
0: When you're at Twitter, one of your responsibilities was to onboard Trump. What was that like? Uh,
1: because the role was uh, onboarding influencers, uh, content creators, they were from entertainment, they were from sports and they were from politics. And one of those was Donald Trump. I think at the time, nobody was really considering that you know he would rise to the head of the party, let alone be the president. Uh, but it was an interesting experience when you think about it in hindsight, and now that you've seen Twitter deplatform Donald Trump and deplatform meaning taking him away his, his ability to tweet, you know, Twitter's a, it's seen as a utility, but it's a private company. It can onboard, offboard as it sees fit.
0: Did you ever meet him in person?
1: Yes. We had to tour him around the, well, didn't have to tour him. We toured him around the uh, New York office as a content creator. You got access to different, um, kind of cool little product. Uh, improvements like a Q&A, or if you're a, a basketball star, you could get access to the, to the 360 camera that showed off your kicks and your and Twitter mirrors. And there were all kinds of cool applications that we were developing for content creators to do interesting things on the platform. So the team was there to kind of bring them on and make sure that they were able to use the platform in the most meaningful way. And so that was done for Mr. Trump as well.
0: So from your lens, of somebody right now, obviously shaping the future of media, the world economic, the time you spent at Twitter, a lot of people in Canada are saying CBC is either past due date or some are even claiming it's just a propaganda engine of the liberal government. Do you think there's a future for public broadcasting? And if you were to come back and run it, what would you do?
1: I don't think I can be accused of drinking the Kool-Aid because I think I came into the CBC with a clear eye and I think I left the CBC with a clear eye. Um, but I also understand and respect the position of public broadcasters globally. It was interesting because I think the challenges of the CBC came hard and came fast right after I left. They lost the, the hockey, you know, the hockey rights. I was there under a time. Uh, under a conservative government um, that you know was really focused on cutting, had to deal with you know trying to make up the gap. And I think what a lot of people don't understand about the CBC is it's a hybrid model. So we were um, supported by advertising as well, so that we could pay for things that were meaningful. And, and it's a public broadcaster, it's not a state broadcaster, as we used to say. It doesn't matter who's in charge. Everyone thinks that the CBC is against them. As a lot of people like to say, the CBC is a currently a, a potential megaphone for the Liberal government. I think those sitting within the liberal government would say, "Well, actually, you're holding us to the fire all the time too, and, and overly so." So I think whoever whoever's in power thinks the CBC is against them. That's just that's just human nature. You know that we we look at that. I did a talk at the EBU, the, the uh, European Broadcast Union, uh, just last year at their AGM, where we went through this as well. And it's challenging everywhere. You know, it's kind of the one safe space if it can be properly supported and if it can be properly kept independent.
0: When we come back with Kirsten Stewart, she's going to share some of her lessons in life, including why she doesn't believe in mentors.
2: The good thing about being different is that no one expects you to be like them. The most grown-up thing you can do is fail at things you really care about. Each week, you can download the latest episode of Chatter That Matters from your iHeartRadio Canada app. Now more with Tony Chapman.
0: Hi, welcome back to Chatter That Matters. You can text us at any time at 71010. If you're just joining me, I'm chatting with Kirsten Stewart, who is a Canadian, who is a trailblazer, uh, has done so much and put a dent in the universe. I would argue that she's following the steps of Oprah, certainly on par with Sheryl Sandberg, Marissa Mayer, so many of the people that are really defining the future of media, and in fact, that is her title, Shaping the Future of Media. Kirsten, you wrote a book called Your Turn. Tell us what it's about and what will I get from reading it.
1: It was pretty obvious that the tide was turning and that business was being defined. Uh, success in business was being defined differently. The work relationship, the value that you know the, the workforce had with its with its employer was being defined differently. Uh, and there was a new generation of people coming in who were demanding a different relationship with their work. And they were not necessarily tied to titles or tied to salary in the same way that we were necessarily as as Gen Xers or even Baby Boomers, the generation before. And there was this kind of sweeping feeling of change, and change brings opportunity. And I was very concerned that we were going to miss on this opportunity. Everybody, women, men, uh, it didn't matter your faith, your your color, your your background, your orientation. You know, it would be based on the fact that you, you know, meritocracy wise, were going to earn your way to the top. And so by creating change and recognizing that that businesses were defining success differently, perhaps if leadership also looked different, it's been really satisfying. It's five years on on now that it's been published. I
0: think it's a timeless book and I encourage everybody. I read it first just as a father, proud father of two daughters, but uh, I was so inspired. I want to get to some of your lessons in life, but you come out saying, for example, you don't believe in mentors, where everybody else is talking about getting a mentor. Explain what you mean by that statement.
1: I think a lot of people are looking for help. And I understand that desire to try to find somebody who's done it and can maybe show you how to do it, and you know the value in in that relationship. I believe in building a cabinet of advisors, your own board of governors, your own whatever you want to call it. Um, and those people um, are going to be people who are like a traditional mentor that have been in the business that you are in and know a little bit about it and can kind of guide you through it. But they're also going to be people from other industries completely. Um, other businesses they are going to be older than you. They should be younger than you. Um, they should have more experience. They should have less experience. If you pull together people that you believe are smart, people that you believe are you know, like-minded and wanting to achieve, you know, certain things and align with your values in life.
0: Another I don't believe is I don't believe in the imposter syndrome. I really enjoyed reading about your thoughts on this and I hope you can share them with my audience.
1: Sure. Uh, Well, I think that a lot of folks um, are told that they have imposter syndrome. I think every person who's a human being has experienced moments of self-doubt and it's easy to Think that that's that could be in some way imposter syndrome, but the you know the self doubt you feel in that moment is a learning moment, and I think it's a check in. I think it's a point of being humble. Is there something that you need to to do more, do better, learn about? I think imposter syndrome sometimes is actually a cop out. I talk about it too in the book about getting out of your own way. Like when you're hired and you're put into a role, there's a lot of people whose you know reputations are on the line who either you know, referenced you, talked you up, hired you, your team depends on you, whether they're colleagues, whether they're teammates, whether they're staff, you're gonna let them down if you're going to kind of cop out to 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 uh, insecurity and and shyness and some kind of idea of imposter syndrome. It's in you to kind of step up. And I'm not talking about leaning in. I'm actually talking about this is this is a time when you have to get over yourself and realize this is for someone bigger than you or something bigger than you. Uh, And maybe in that way, that's how I found I could get over it. And maybe if that gives comfort or an idea to someone else, then I say use it.
0: I want to hear more about what you mean when you said, I believe women can be other women's worst critics and our most disappointing allies, especially white women who haven't learned from their own challenges.
1: Yeah, we're living in really interesting times. And I think, you know, maybe it was the election Maybe it's, you know, all of the kind of inflection points that we're seeing around the election in society that are kind of showing people for who they are and their self-interest. I've always been really proud to be loud about the fact that I am you know, part of a underrepresented group and being a woman. Uh, and, you know, we've seen, you know, again, these are <laughs> in a post factual world, these are things that are proven by fact. You know, we are being factually paid less. We are factually not given promotions. We're, you know, there's, there's a lot of statistics that back that up. So put that aside. Um, what I see though is sometimes this, and, and, and it, it, it's that nature too. And in the generations before me, when there was only room at the table for, one or two people who look different than the you know white, straight males that were sitting around the table, those that were left for the that one seat of diversity sometimes were not ready to share that with others. Um, but I'm a big believer in building the bigger table. Like you said about building your own ladder. I think you know if you're sitting at the table, then you have a responsibility to bigger build a bigger table. That sense of loneliness that I talked about earlier, being you know the only woman too, or one of the few women too again, you know, I was there of a certain privilege. I might not come from a connected family, but I certainly come from a race that's entitled me to certain privileges that others don't get. Um, I have a certain orientation, a certain faith, you know, all of those things that are kind of on my side. Uh, when I have the the check the box of women as, as diversity, there's I know that of a tiering system, I'm still at a certain level that others are not being recognized at. Um, And so that's given me certain privileges. And so I think it is our responsibility. I think sometimes women by virtue of being afraid to share the bigger table because they think they might lose their own seat. um, I think that's very sad, um, but I think it happens. And I know that I've, I've been subject to it myself in terms of, I think I've been pushed out of tables that Um, by others who, who felt like they couldn't, there wouldn't be room for more than one of them or more than one of us. Um, And I think I learned that lesson really early and thought, you know what, if I'm going to get a chance to sit at that table, I'm going to build a bigger one. And I think sometimes, yes, women uh, can be the harshest critics of other women. You know, again, this is a big opportunity. Abundance is out there. We can share this. It can only get better.
0: So last thing I want to ask you is, you know, you, you You've done so much at such a young age. What's next? What's going to keep that fast tracker who gets impatient and bored and looking for the next ladder to, to create? Yeah. Uh but- Excited for the next decade. Well,
1: and I'm not so young anymore. So now that I've crossed into the over fifties, <laughs> so I'm, I'm considering, you know, I'm considering like what is left and how many more years, and you know, what what can I, where can I possibly be helpful and and impactful, you know, given my advanced years at this point. I don't know what I'll be doing next, um, but you know, it is interesting. I look back at my career, and except for that first stint where I was at um, the television distribution company for seven years. I kind of roll every three years and I'm coming up to my third year at the forum. So uh, uh, women are pretty good at keeping their head down and doing a really, you know, good job of what they're doing in the moment. Um, um, But it is important to, to scan the horizon and see what's coming. And I, all I see is fascination and excitement. And so I'm looking forward to seeing what comes next.
0: I'm chatting with Kirsten Stewart and the three highlights are number one, no regrets. She never looks back and wonders what could have been. She's always focused on what's next and what can I be. Second thing is expand your table. What an incredible piece of insight. Instead of fearing competitors, instead of being threatened, instead of trying to build a moat around what you have, expand the table, invite other people to it. But the most important thing to take away is this sense of humility. I like to give other people the mic. I like to turn on the camera. I mean, this is the person shaping the future of media at the World Economic Forum. And what she wants to do is be part of somebody else's story and help them get to where they want to go.
1: Absolutely, and thanks for all you doing. Like, look at what you're doing in this space. I think it's amazing. So congratulations on all you're building.
0: Joining me at Chatter That Matters is Armin Huska, and he's someone who matters to me. See, when I was first pitching the show to RBC about personalizing the stories of small business heroes and ordinary Canadians who do extraordinary things, Armin was the first person I talked to and he was enthusiastic and encouraging and came back with great ideas and helped to make that show happen. We're talking about the future of media and Armin heads up media and agency management for RBC. Massive job. Helps to manage the agencies that produce the creative and then find the places to put the advertising to reach them. I mean, welcome.
3: Thank you for having me, Tony, and thank you for the compliments.
0: My chat with Kristen Stewart, we talked a lot about the concept of trust. Does trust still exist in media?
3: Well, obviously, yes, there is a decline by consumers uh, regarding trust in media outlets or in news outlets in specific uh, areas. But the discussion is actually twofold. One is in the same research, if you would ask the same consumers around how much they trust the fifth estate. So the journalistic uh proper platforms like a globe, like a Torstar, like a Bell Rogers of Chorus, like owned and operated uh news outlets and content distributors, they actually trust them with a high, high level. We've seen that fake news, etc., has been amplified massively over the last couple of years in Platforms like Facebook or Google. The challenge, though, is, is also that those companies are not really media companies, right? So they they position themselves as technology companies and are just taking part of the responsibility what is happening or posted or distributed on their platforms. Whereas traditional media companies, they actually they have regulators, legislators, um, quotas. They have far more responsibilities actually in how they vet distribute researcher story. So you're actually having two areas that are muddled together in the same research, which is sadly not a fair representation and not a fair playing field for those Canadian owned and operated media companies, for example.
0: So in Canada, we're seeing traditional media struggling and many are relying on the support of government. How important is it for Canadians to have their own media? And what is the role of a company like RBC to ensure it's supporting Canadian media with their advertising dollars?
3: We as marketers, I feel we have a moral obligation to support, not in a charitable cause, because actually advertising in those Canadian owned and operated media outlets is actually good for business. It's brand safe. It's high quality content environment where if you run your ads in there, we call it ad adjacency. It's actually very good results for us. I think we have a moral obligation as advertisers because most of those companies rely on ad dollars. Yes, there are some outlets like CBC that get some taxpayer money, but to keep them in the business and to help them to fund the newsroom because the newsroom journalists cost money. They are highly trained people. We need to support by overcoming the media density issue. All of us advertisers, we're drinking the Kool-Aid from those Silicon Valley companies and The result is that 80% of that $20 billion advertising industry goes straight into their pockets. The cards are really stacked against the Canadian-owned and operated companies, right, which are fighting for the breadcrumbs that are left over. This is not a sustainable model, and I don't want to picture a world where there is no fixed estate. We need proper professional content distribution with proper professional content, researched by journalists, posted by journalists. We need to do better as a community.
0: Armin, thank you for joining me on Chatter That Matters and for believing in Canadian content and media.
3: Thank you for having me, Tony.
0: It's Tony Chapman. Let's chat soon.
2: Chatter That Matters with Tony Chapman has been a presentation of RBC. Fridays, join Tony Chapman for Chatter That Matters on the iHeartRadio Canada Talk Network.